Hey, Onscript listeners. This is going to be the last podcast of our 2016 year, our 22nd episode. I want to thank all of you for listening and joining us in this new adventure. Uh, Matt and I have really found this to be uh, a rich experience in getting to connect with some of our heroes in the field, some of our friends, and also to hear from you and the way that this has been helpful to so many people. In this season of giving, if any of you would like to support us with $2 a month, that would be really helpful in keeping this podcast going. Uh, If you want to just check out our donate page on the website, onscript.study, that would be super helpful. Finally, head on over to iTunes, let us know what you think of the podcast, especially if it's positive feedback. Okay, now on to the interview. Welcome to the On Script Podcast. I'm here with a longtime friend, Mary Catherine Hom. Mary and I got to know each other when we both did our graduate studies at Regent College in Vancouver, Mm -hmm. and we've stayed good friends since then. So Mary is an Old Testament scholar and does a lot of work in missions as well, so I'm really interested to talk to you about the convergence of those two things, because often they're held worlds apart. Uh, Mary received her PhD from Cambridge and her THM from Regent College in Vancouver, and she is the author of The Characterization of the Assyrians in Isaiah, Synchronic and Diachronic Perspectives. So Mary, thanks for joining OnScript. Thanks so much, Matt. So I was just thinking about where to start this interview, and I think it might help our listeners if you share a little bit about your journey Um, your story and how that led you into biblical scholarship, uh, but also this desire to kind of weave together biblical studies and your work and concern for uh, mission around the world. Yeah. You know, it's a good question. Um, I mean, it's a really good question to ask for these sort of interviews because everyone has a different journey and I love hearing different people's stories. And I just want to say that to start off with because... Hmm. I know my story might sound a little unique, and um, I don't want anyone who has a different sort of story to feel badly, whatever. But my my story begins probably with my first year in undergrad, the very first Bible study that I went to. Mm-hmm. This is at uh, Urbana. Yeah, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a staff worker who was leading this first study, and Gospel of John, Chapter 1, um, mm-hmm. just... You know, we're like reading the first few verses and she says, okay, so what do you think the word word means? What does the word word mean? I wasn't used to reading the Bible that way, that carefully, or even thinking that well. And so then, you know, we started talking about the Greek and all this stuff and um, the possibilities of depth um, and also the distance in a sense that we have with the Bible as literature, all that just, you know, I suddenly became aware of all these things in that first Bible study. Um, so I went to the nearby Christian bookstore, bought myself a Greek-English dictionary. Oh, wow. You went right for it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, Do you, guys, you guys have something. Most people would have reached for like the MacArthur Study uh, Bible or no, something No, no, I went point. straight to it. And then I started okay. buying, I was like buying like Tyndale New Testament commentaries. Wow. I was, I was looking at everything that the bookstore had and I was just going kind of for the jugular. And I also ended up taking Greek through the university. It was Attic Greek. So it's much harder than Koine, which was actually a great background, actually, before you get into biblical Greek. 
Um, and it was taught by the head of the department. I did not realize that when I signed up. <laughs> so, so I did it really more for just, uh, personal reasons of faith, getting yeah. into biblical studies. As I got more involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, from my perspective, God grew my heart for people. Hmm. And that led to me going to Regent College for my master's degrees. Uh, Regent at the time was one of those sort of mystic places where it was quality seminary level education for people who may or may not go on to the pastor or official full-time ministry. And for someone like me, a more, um, a person who likes to think outside the box and, um, think of creative solutions and have a wide view of the world and, and to stay in touch with different spheres and interdisciplinary things. That was very appealing. Um, I was not drawn towards places to study um, things of the faith more that felt um, rigid or sort of narrow. So I felt like Regent had a good breath to start off with. I felt led there, to be honest, I'll, I'll say that. And so... Uh, it was really strange. I was taking these classes because I just had questions, which for me, you know, the um, the divide between the spiritual and the intellectual for me, it, was, um, it wasn't always present or it was somewhat fuzzy or something of a gray area at times. So um, I just feel like it's part of the way that I'm wired. I'm, I'm wired to ask questions that include questions of the mind. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it really fit to do a THM. I was ready to... I'm doing a more thorough investigation of a particular question I had. I actually wrote down the, you know, I was trying to figure out what my topic would be. And in one session, I wrote down like nine topics I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> so it was more a matter of um, working with my supervisor as to, well, what question was he interested in working with me on? Um, and, and that should have been a sign to me, if looking back on it, that um, I would continue to want to investigate these questions and I would say it's, it, it was and it still is a, a matter of faith-seeking understanding. Hmm. Um, that led to doing a PhD over the University of Cambridge, and it has led to me continuing scholarship um, okay. for a lot of reasons. So Yeah, so it's interesting because thinking back to our time at Regent, which is where, where we got to know each other, um, you were really influential in, in helping me think about how to get into the scholarly world a little bit more deeply. Uh, I remember sitting down with you and talking about like, how do you publish an article? Cause you had already published several articles and I was like, how do you, how do you go about doing that? Um, and you were really helpful for that, but also in, in steering me toward um, a mentor who would it not only academically, but also spiritually engage with me. Oh my gosh. Along the way. We, we had so, a great mentor. Yeah. Yeah. We, so we, we so we were both mentored um, in our THM Theses by uh, V. Phillips Long, Yay! Phil Long, and uh, supplemental, so you, you did... supplemental mentoring by Polly Long. I just gotta say, oh yeah, just gotta say. And so you did your THM on Girardian, uh, an adjusted Girardian hermeneutic for the Book of Jonah. Is that right? Right. I'm looking at violence and conflict, or I was looking at violence and conflict in the Book of Jonah from an adjusted mm -hmm. Girardian hermeneutic. There you go, and and that and that landed you in the Assyrian. Period. Wow, you have a great which, memory. <laughs> which you, which you kind of have stayed in in various ways. So, you, but you, you didn't like like some scholars. They choose a book and they're like, "I'm a Jonah scholar," and they keep doing Jonah stuff nonstop. And they join the Jonah group at SBL. But you, you sort of explored the Assyrian period from from different angles. So, well, let's let's hear first about the Girardian 
rereading of of Jonah. What was your primary argument or some of the questions you're wrestling with there? Um, the primary question I had was, um, it's like, what was the relationship in the book of Jonah, um, between God and his people, God and the other and his people and the other, what was it? And what was it supposed to be, especially Mm -hmm. between the people and the other. And I chose the period of, well, when the near, during the near, I chose the near Assyrian period because it was, um, such a flowering time of multiculturalism, of cross-culturalism. Uh, the Assyrians were the first ancient Near Eastern empire. And so um, there's all these new possibilities happening with cross-culturalism. And I wanted to see more what was going on there and what God, is, God had to say about that. So those were some of like the underlying mm-hmm. motivations. I see Gerard come up all the time yeah, in biblical very, studies. Very so, <laughs> so, it, so first, Rene Gerard is who is he? Um, he started out in literary studies, I believe, at okay. Indiana University. It's been a while though, man. That was yeah, like, yeah. Like, twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he noticed certain, you know, there, he has a number of key concepts that tend to go out into the different disciplines. And one of them is that people tend to elevate or denigrate difference. And if they elevate difference to the point of um, idolizing it, um, eventually it becomes the scapegoat. That's how Mm -hmm. you get the work, the scapegoat. Um, One of the ways I see it filtering through into the stuff I read. So I've I've looked at Gerard briefly before, but it's always secondhand. I mean, primarily secondhand. So this idea that Societies, in order to sort of contain and manage violence, come up with scapegoat systems, which enable them to focus their violence on a victim. Mm -hmm. And then that serves as a kind of mechanism for dealing with cultural violence that's a little more manageable. And it's not so much violence, though. Okay. That's the insight he gives. It's not so much much the expression Hmm. that we would call it violence. Um. But it's more the issue that people have with difference. Okay. The issue that people have, or not even so much with difference, but with boundary crossers. Mm. What do you do when you come across um, an object, a thing, or, dare we say, a person who does not fit your categories? Mm. That's where you come up with the scapegoat. So instead of dealing with someone or something that... um, does not fit categories mm. instead you elevate them you denigrate them mm. either and, way yeah, yeah. Can scapegoat. so so is is the idea then that that that's you were looking at jonah then because jonah becomes a kind of scapegoat for when he's thrown overboard or is it is it more like the uh issues around nineveh as a violent nation and they're the other this is like becoming our reunion <laughs> old-time <laughs> memory thing so <laughs> Uh, one of my mentors was James Houston. Yeah. And and he's actually a spirituality professor. And I was heading more for biblical studies. But mm-hmm. again, like I said, for me, um, there's um, this continuity in that. Mm-hmm. So I went to see Dr. Houston to talk about, um, and just catch up on life, tell him about what I was thinking for my THM. Mm-hmm. And I told him, well, I'm thinking about doing something in the book of Jonah. And he said... Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you should look at Jonah as scapegoat. Hmm. And then he said, you should look at Rene Girard. And I was like, what? Who? <laughs> well, as it turns out, um, the scapegoat 
is a classic work of Rene Girard's, but it's actually, <laughs> it's not one that I would recommend people who are new to um, Girard and his theories. It's not one that I would recommend that they get into. It's much more difficult to read that book than it is with his later works. Hmm. Um, but just just the idea um, was provocative. And then I recognized that at that time in um, biblical studies, at least in academia, Girardian theory, Girardian theory was popular. Um, I'm going to say I felt in a superficial way, uh, but you know, because I noticed, you know, at SBL during sessions, people would drop the name Girard or say something about Girard. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> because of because of the fact that I had read everything up to that point that he had written mm. and published um, within the realm of biblical studies and his core theories back then. Um, people didn't always understand it. So, so as I was noticing this, that just motivated me to look at his work more. So I would know what are these theories, what are these theories, and how are people kind of abusing the idea of Girardian hermeneutics? What's yeah. more behind it? Um, Matt, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, I found out quite belatedly, belatedly being like a year or two later, <laughs> <laughs> that um, I think there's actually a lot going on with deconstructionist theory and some stuff mm-hmm. with um, Derrida and Derrida, right? He's going, he's building on people before him that Gerard is actually building on. Um, mm-hmm. And not everyone has that kind of background. I actually don't. So it's just like, just, you know, just my slight foray into reading mm-hmm. um, some of those works that made me realize that there's actually, Gerard is, Gerard is um, worth looking at, but he's building on a corpus um, of French theory that was considerably more before him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because one of the things that uh, I would say bothers me a little bit about the way that I've seen him picked up by biblical scholars is this idea that sacrifice is a mechanism for managing violence. And so it almost becomes a non-falsifiable theory where Israel used the idea of an animal who was sacrificed as a as a, a kind of system for controlling and focusing their violent tendencies and and, th- and this this usually ends up being a kind of um, lead on to some sort of critique of a myth of redemptive violence that through violence you can manage or control violence so that's just one of the ways I've seen it show up, and I have no idea if that connects to the way that Gerard actually thinks and writes. <laughs> um, I think in general, I think I'd say you're right. And the thing is, um, as he talks about in When I Saw Satan Fall Like Lightning, um, the thing that makes Christianity different, that makes Jesus different, is that Jesus breaks the cycle. Hmm. He doesn't respond with violence. Um so, and yet he had the worst kind of violence inflicted upon him. So, as you've, as you probably know, Gerard actually um, had a return to faith as he was looking more at these things. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So he became a Christian again. But, I mean, he also had some experiential things happen um, as he was fighting cancer and stuff. So oh, wow. he had both Didn't the renewal that. of um, his thinking and yeah. also of his experience. Yeah, and his so, body. So, or, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. transformation. Really. I think it was well. cancer, actually, so. Wow. So then, so you stayed with the Assyrians and you went to Cambridge and you wrote your book on the characterization of the Assyrians in Isaiah. So what, what drew you then to the book of Isaiah and what were some of the issues that you 
wrestle with there? Um, I was drawn to Isaiah because not too many people were interested in supervising a thesis on Leviticus. <laughs> so, Leviticus is my first choice, and they're like, "What are you crazy?" I was like, "No, I'm kidding." What were you going to do in Leviticus? What were you going to focus it on? It didn't matter. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Uh, what I love about there's so much that's so cool about Leviticus. It's such yeah. a rich world, and it's it's a world where you have to understand the ancient Near Eastern world to understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the appeal of the richness. I mean, this is a book about worship. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it is written, um, the the poetry, the rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's supposed to reflect sort of. Um, the rhythm with which we read it, with which we um, have faith in our lives, the um, expression of of what it means to be holy coming out in every aspect of your life, whether it's like the fabric you wear um, or just, you know, what are you doing with the parapet around <laughs> your house yeah. and what you eat. Um, there is this consciousness of this um, yeah. gently built into every aspect of life. Yeah. Um, and your skin condition. Right? Yeah, seriously. No, that's Mold fantastic. Mold in your house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This whole idea of holiness, what does mm-hmm. it mean to be holy? So, um, but it, the way it comes out, I just think it's so beautifully done. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, this. I love to have the example when I'm telling people how awesome Leviticus is. You know, I was, like, I was like, so what do you make of like, you know, the sacrifice of the fat off of a lamb's kidneys? Most people don't think that sounds really cool. I find I find it spiritually edifying. You do instantly. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, tell me about that. Well, y- you know, um, I, I just think it, it makes a great verse a day kind of um, thing that you could put on a calendar, and you know, one day is great as I faithfulness. The next day, and they burn the fat on the kidneys. I mean, it just seems like a logical follow on. It for ought a to be on more T-shirts. I don't yeah. know why it's not. I mean, that's like, my take, but. Not everyone like, sees it that way. If you give me the t-shirt, I'll wear it. Yeah. So, and, and here's the thing. It's it's done it, it's done so slowly in this worshipful kind of rhythm. Hmm. And I think that's supposed to express and reflect, you know, the way with which we do this as well. Or they hmm. would do that back then. Um, the kidneys, right? The inward parts. Back then, you know, if you wanted to tell someone that you love them with all that's inside you, you wouldn't say, as we would say today, I love you with my heart. It's like... Mm-hmm. I love you with my liver. I love you with my inward part. You know, I love you with my kidneys. So hence we have the kidneys. And then you take the fat off that and the fat represents the best. Hmm. So the symbolism, yeah, you, we, why, do, why did they um, offer to the Lord the fat off the kidneys? Because that's representative of the best of your heart. Yeah. So I'm going to steal that and use that in class, I think. <laughs> You're welcome to. <laughs> and make sure you have t-shirts and bumper yeah. stickers ready. Okay. Um, so. So yeah, I actually wanted to do Leviticus. That didn't fly too well. It sounds like, it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like your kidneys are still in the book of Leviticus, uh, so to speak. They, part of, you've part you've of got them. a real, you've got a real kidney for Leviticus. I'm trying to it's, speak in, in Leviticus, Leviticusian I, terms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I wouldn't put it past me. I don't think I've ever found a part of scripture that at the end of the day, once I get into it, I didn't like. Um, for me, it's all the word of God. Uh, so, yeah. But sometimes it's just different kinds of beauties or different ways of expressing that. Different kinds of lessons or just different kinds of insights, different things to connect with. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then you... You went for Isaiah. I went for Isaiah instead. Isaiah was my backup. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, that sounds horrible to put it that way. Um, <laughs> and, and so the thing about Isaiah was um, it was the Neo-Assyrian thing. I was like, okay, yeah, we've got um, a computer machinist over at Harvard, actually. Um, 
had published an article on Assyrianisms in First Isaiah, which I thought sounded really cool. And I liked his work on that. Um, but I also wanted to work with Robert Gordon over at the University of Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And what we came up with was to look at the Assyrians in the Old Testament. And then he said, you know, later on down the line, after you do your dissertation, then on your own, you can look further at more comparative studies mm-hmm. um, between like the Assyrian record and um, you know, the Old Testament. But for now, he's like, I want you to actually know the Old Testament really well, especially Isaiah in doing this. Um, well, he had to say, especially Isaiah in doing this because <laughs> I was going so carefully and deeply through the Old Testament with the passage that explicitly mentioned Assyria, that by the time I was done with Kings and Chronicles, I was actually done with a dissertation. But I really wanted to do Isaiah as well. There is just, I love this, the, the scope of Isaiah. I love the majesty. I love the poetry. And at that time, I hadn't studied in depth, like in depth, in depth, any of the poetic literature in the Old Testament. Sure. I really wanted to get um, deeply into a prophetic book. I wanted partly because it felt so distant. I was like, I don't, um, something I loved back then about Old Testament studies was um, sort of the challenge of crossing that gap, um, of not letting what felt so distant be distant, because I don't believe it's actually supposed to be. Yeah, and I, I think Isaiah is one of those books that a lot of people like the idea of Isaiah, and then they get into it, and it's like, what do, what do you do with this book? Um, oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's like, well, oh, it's do, not as pretty do, as do I you thought think, it was. One of, the, one of the questions I've had about Isaiah is or really any of the big prophetic books, especially, do you think it's meant to be read through, like straight through? Or like, how how do you think the book was actually meant to be used? I, I've always wondered about that. Because, you know, you, you read narrative books, obviously they're meant to be read through, and they kind of work well that way. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah, I just feel like, I love teaching it. I, I teach a class on it, but I, I, I don't know how it was meant to be read, whether it was meant to be read, you know, let's let's just go through this whole thing. You mean in its final form? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess I would see it more as a collection in a sense. Yeah. Um, and yet not not strictly in the modern sense of a collection, um, because there's clear um, themes and motifs that tie the whole thing together. Right, stitched together. Uh, but at the same time, to read the whole thing through in one go, um, it's very hard to believe that they would do that. With There's so much going on yeah. in the text. Yeah. You're constantly weaving between judgment and salvation. And, and I, I feel like instead of saving the salvation for like a nice dramatic climactic section of the book, they keep weaving it in, mm-hmm. you know, which I find kind of interesting. And maybe definitely not the way I would do it. <laughs> and there's sub-collections but in the they book didn't as well. But cons- they didn't consult me. So so you focused on the Assyrians and Isaiah. And what, what did you find? Um... This is going to sound really nerdy, but I really like how in Isaiah chapter 30, um, verses 27 through 33, um, there is a reversal of Assyria-heavy terminology. Okay, so Isaiah 30, 27? To 33. Should I read part of that? Eh, You can if you want. I mean... Okay, just in case our listeners don't have it all memorized. But the thing is, it's much more clear in Hebrew. Yeah, well, I think... So I don't know, the English translation will be sort of adequate, but it may not yeah. bring out what's actually happening. Well, I'll, I'll read the English. 
So see, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in a sieve of destruction. He places in the jaws of the peoples a bit that leads them astray. Wow, Mary, you're really going for the the hardcore stuff. And you will sing as on the night you celebrate a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice as when people playing pipes go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause the people to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, with cloudbursts, thunderstorm, and hail. The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria. With his rod, he will strike them down. Every stroke the Lord lays on them with his punishing club will be to the music of timbrels and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arm. Mm, mm. Um, how far do I go? The next verse, to okay, so Topheth has been made, has been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. Okay, so you, this is a passage that you grabbed onto. Well, everyth what? every everything's got something. Yeah. Um, this one, I think, this is just because this is something that no one else had point out before, but I think it was pretty clear by the time I got to chapter 30, having gone through all these other passages yeah. that talked about Assyria, was that um, we have um, drawn into this passage vocabulary and motifs that previously had referred to Assyria as, with Assyria being the subject, doing mm. these actions on the people of God. Uh -huh. So, and it usually in the context of oppression. I think all of them, actually. Yeah, yeah. So these terms become associated with Assyria, hmm. and specifically Assyria oppressing others, yeah. including the people of God. But what happens after this long journey <laughs> of um, Isaiah you know, 1 through 29 is that you get to chapter 30, and the same words that used to be used, in a sense, by the Assyrians against the people of God and other peoples are used now by Yahweh against mm. Assyria. So it's mm. a great reversal where Assyria, in a sense, get, gets some of its own medicine mm. um, and justice is served. Mm. And I love how that happens. Again, it's easier to see it in Hebrew because then you can see the exact terms and things. Sure. Um, but to have walked through a long slow look at the book of Isaiah with these passages and the, to get to chapter 30 and suddenly see this, the impact was very strong on me. It was um, in terms of reading and it was, it was very powerful. So you can, you can see, or as you should say, you can hear as, as one reads it out loud in their English translations, just in terms of the content, this is a fantastic theophany. But if you look at it in the context, the theophany is uh, an appearance of God, yeah, like an actual, like, dramatic appearance right? sensory one yeah okay. um but if you were to read that even more in the context of isaiah 1 through 30 it would impact you even more hmm. and then if you were to read it in the hebrew <laughs> it's going to be yeah. then you you would see this on the more detailed level um this intentional reversal um the long-awaited justice is here and um hmm. yahweh ha has been aware of what assyria is doing and um hmm. Is yeah, now showing himself to be the one who is over all that and 
Yeah. Yeah. So that gets back to my earlier question then about how the book's meant to be read. So whether it's meant to be read in one sitting or whatever mm-hmm. it is, it it marches you through all the the drama and torment of Assyrian power. It took me months to, then, to that to get yeah, to that point, though. So, so it wasn't one a, reading; it was months. Right, and, and so, it, let's say Isaiah was meant to be read in a kind of liturgical setting, and they're reading yeah. this kind of week after week, and then they get to chapter thirty, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there's this dramatic reversal, mm-hmm. which which is sort of that's kind of okay. your approach to the book, right? You you are interested in Isaiah as literature too, and and how the the poetics of Isaiah have their effect. Right. right. Well, but I couldn't assume when I started out that there would be consistency or coherence. I just didn't know yeah. what I was in for. Hmm. Um, so I wanted, I just, I, I really wanted the text to speak for itself. Um, but it was more than a pleasant surprise to find hmm. actually there's a lot of intentionality. There is hmm. a lot of coherence. Hmm. Um, yeah. So what, so, what um, so some people hear this and they would, they might say, Hey, Okay, it, it's great that God gives justice, but he's also adopting the Assyrian violence, you know, for himself. Is is it is this just a kind of poetic, dramatic way of saying that God will enact justice or or what? You know, because Assyria is portrayed as uh, over the top in its violence. And so if, you know, going beyond and so for God to adopt that as well, is that, is that theologically a problem, do you think? You know, I think it's the wrong question because it's not to say that violence doesn't matter, believe me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue in Isaiah isn't that Assyria has overstepped its violence. It, it's not turning a blind eye to that. But the core issue is that Assyria has overstepped its commission, whatever that is. And violence is part of the expression of that, and and so it kind of gets and so it gets canned for all these things, sure. violence included. But there's a more core issue to that. Maybe arrogance, like because they're it just pers- no, yeah. it just overstepped the commission. So and then there's and there's ways in which done that. So violence is one of them. Arrogance is another. Um, you know, literally, it's crossing like boundaries. So, um, yeah, it's estimation of itself, not just its approach to the people of God um, or other nations or other people groups, um, but also its approach to the Lord. Um, it's overstepped all of that. So, so so God's saying, I hired you to do something, which was to enact judgment on the people, but you've, you've somehow gone beyond that. And it's a little bit unspecified. Right. In the book, right. right. Well, it, yeah. it gets actually, it's very specified, but gets unpacked more and more. So yeah. as you go on past 30, right? No, or, no, no, or, no. I'd say actually before 30. So just so our listeners are familiar with the idea, so Isaiah 1 to 39 are generally said to have come more or less from the Assyrian period. So those are the chapters you'd be they dealing with. They reflect that time. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So we don't know when they were, that doesn't mean they were all the oracles were put together at that time, but they reflect the issues at play then. And in particular, Sennacherib mm-hmm. and his attack on Jerusalem. Okay. And... So maybe do you want to briefly flesh that out? Because I, I think it's interesting that I, I think Sennacherib's attack on Jerusalem is is probably one of the most significant events for oh my Israel. Gosh. There's been so much written and published about it. Yeah. 
Just go read that stuff. <laughs> what, is, what specifically do you want me to say that someone hasn't already said? Well, you know, not not everyone listening will be uh, familiar with it, though. Okay. It might be a bit of a surprise okay. for some people. So now we're talking... Not to Isaiah scholars. But we're but, talking about this in the context of biblical literature. Yeah. So... So what's the impact? So Sennacherib comes and he... What, what's going on? Um, he's campaigning through the West and um, back then in the ancient Near East um, one of the rules so to speak of warfare is that if you get the capital city you've got all that's under it right so mm. the way to get a nation is to get the capital right and Sennacherib manages to get all the fortified towns which is pretty much all the big cities back then except the capital <laughs> that makes no sense right but as we read both in the biblical literature and in the Assyrian royal record, mm-hmm. he did make an attempt to capture Jerusalem, but he failed. So, um, yeah, there's that famous line in his annals where he says, I shut up Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. And the subtext there is I didn't actually destroy it. Right. right. And that's not the only time that we see this in the Assyrian annals. We see the same phrase used elsewhere for another um, would-be conquests that didn't work out. Mm. So we know how to understand this. Um, it's about yeah. it's a way of like bragging about your failure. Isn't it? <laughs> like, well, you know, um, I think he just he was more like let's just move on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so he ends up he ends up celebrating the defeat of one of the big fortified cities. Instead, that's how we get Lachish. the Lachish reliefs, right? Over in the British Museum. Yeah, which which is some of your other work, right? Right. So, what, so I wanted to. Look what else at, are you up to? So I decided. Well, let's look at that a little bit more. <laughs> this is going um, beyond Mary's book, and so we're talking about some of the other articles she's written since then. Right. She and actually, this one's this one's more a conference paper. So I'll be doing okay. this um, at SBL in November, and I present it at the Tyndale Quadrennial. Ooh, are we getting a preview here? Um, no, no, no. Well, you're getting both a preview, but also a post view because mm. I presented this. Okay, okay. At the Tyndall Quadrant, gotcha. so to the Biblical Archaeology Group. Okay. Um, it's titled, Sennacherib Psyche, the Lachish Reliefs, Father-Son Dynamics, and Other Matters in the Internal and Ideological World of a Neo-Assyrian Empire. And this began by And what's the at- acronym for that, that whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, don't, I have to think about something clever with that. Um, so, yeah, it, one of my um, archaeology colleagues pointed out when we were going through the British Museum, that Sennacherib's Lachish reliefs are um, more um, visually complex than any other Assyrian reliefs that we have up to that point in history mm-hmm. concerning the siege of a single city. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about well, why might that be so? And he thought it was because, and I should say he's a um, a Mesopotamian archaeologist mm-hmm. and a very, very good one. Um, so he proposed that the reason the Lakish reliefs were um, so over the top relative to it being actually a minor victory um, yeah. compared to previous emperor's um, accomplishments he thought it was because uh, Sennacherib was just trying to, um, you know, elevate himself for historical reasons, um, to buy into the whole Assyrian uh, braggadocio, um, 
because not only was it kind of a flop, the actual like yeah. um, conquest in that respect, because they didn't get Jerusalem, um, but also because Sennacherib himself was not known up to that point for his military prowess. So this is kind he, of small man syndrome. It was. It was. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think so. Mm-hmm. The more I looked into it, the I, I think so. Uh, he, <laughs> he was he was great at you know all the nerdy stuff. He was really into building works. Um, he had experience with administration um, because he took care of a lot of that for um, the em- empire when his dad was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was made fun of on the playground as a kid. Well, he might have been. You know, this, I, I think I think we've got some issues going on there. Um, and there's That's some really interesting. Yeah, no, there's some him. other interesting archaeological things. For instance, um, he never mentions, as far as you could tell, he never mentions his father hmm. ever. Right. It looks like he, he buried his mother and he mentions his mother. He does not acknowledge his father. Wow. Um, Which is a pretty big deal. Right. Like, I mean, yeah. Like succession and wanting to legitimate your status in the kingdom, right? Right. I mean, especially when your dad was like one of like like the greatest conquerors that the Neo-Syrian Empire or the Syrian Emperor Empire ever like is known. So know? what do you think is behind so, that? Is well, that just okay, is so the an accident theory, of history? Or? So... The dominant theory, oh yeah, and there's one more I should mention, is that there was, what's it? There's the temple, um, the temple of Ashur, his father was, um, working on building that, and then, you know, his father dies, so Sennacherib is obliged to finish it, and his father had these, um, beautifully painted bricks. Um, Sennacherib does take these bricks and builds up, you know, the, um, the courtyard wall, like mm-hmm. he's supposed to. Mm-hmm. But he mixes them up. So Oops. the paintings are all scrambled. And oh, then. Oh, Sennacherib. And then he raises the level of the courtyard. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mud brick, or the, the mud terrace, I think it is, like, mm-hmm. it goes up so you can't even see, like, the paintings. Hmm. So <laughs> just like, just he's hiding stuff and just um, kind of this disrespect for his dad, and kind of, I mean, it is. Yeah. yeah. So the, the dominant theory is that, is it called the Sin of Sargon? And this is found in later. So Sargon, Sargon, wait, who, who's Sargon his father? II. Sargon II, who 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 conquered the north. He exiled um, the uh, right. the northern kingdom, right, right, Samaria, conquered right. Samaria, right, yeah, right, right. Okay, so <clears throat> he he doesn't talk to his dad. They're on bad terms because he because uh, Sennacherib. They did talk some. Mm-hmm. Sargon was often on the battlefield or more in. Um, the Babylonian area, because okay. there was a lot going on over there. Yeah. Um, so Sargon actually got a lot of practice just like maintaining things on the home front mm-hmm. kind of thing. And also um, helping with the building of Dir Sharkin, hmm. um, which never did get completed. So uh, so they had some letters. They had some correspondence, as Alan Millard has pointed out. They had some correspondence going back and forth. You know, mm-hmm. I would say you would expect that. I mean, it's a practical thing. You would do that yeah. with your leaders as well. Mm-hmm. Um and there's also evidence that um, we see this in some of the letters that while Sargon was respected, his son Sennacherib was not so much by provincial leaders and governors. <clears throat> Again, you would expect that to some degree, um, but it makes one wonder um, what's going on with Sennacherib. So, yeah, I think there are some father-son issues there. Um, the sin of Sargon theory that's more of a later that's based more on like a 
a later Neurosurian text, I think, but um, it's this idea that Sargon had experienced a violent death. And so Sennacherib separated and distanced himself from that as much as possible so that he would not also suffer mm. a violent death. So some superstition around his father's death transferring exactly. to him. But the problem with that is that you have other examples of people who have suffered a violent, unexpected death. Yeah, it's kind Snackerib. of the norm. <laughs> well, you know, father-son issues. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's a lot of dysfunctionality going on at that time. Um, so he didn't ultimately escape it. No. <laughs> and yet his um, son and grandson don't appear to have had the same sort of denial of their relationship. So <laughs> it's so it's like that principle just doesn't seem to be working quite mm-hmm. so well. So, so he, he has the reliefs of his attack and, um, you know, destruction of Lachish in his palace wall, on his palace walls, right? In a, cent- a fairly centrally located room that would not have been on the periphery. So, like, you could, if you were to see a visual of it or, if, you know, in a reconstruction of it, you, know, you it, w- it would be like you'd see, like, something like three sets of the bull lion's framing these hallways these doorways mm-hmm. and then right at the end you'd have like these reliefs um so they were they'd be quite ceremoniously i'm going to dare to say that word but maybe i shouldn't mm-hmm. presented and yet at the same time it's not the kind of thing people would see on the outside mm-hmm. it would be for people who are really on the inside which makes sense um, because who are the reliefs for um my argument is it's more for posterity um it's more for the gods or his idea of the gods um it's more for the people already in the palace who might uh, he might feel threatened by because maybe they're going to try and like kill him to get the mm-hmm. throne, which mm-hmm. they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, so, so he but sa- also, I think they're for himself. Mm-hmm. I think he needed it for his ego. I'm going to dare to say that. Um, because if it was for, like some people were like, oh, it's for, you know, um, ambassadors from foreign countries. If that's the case, right. you would have them um, closer out towards the front or on the outside. Right. But they're not. They're more centrally located. Right. which means it's more for people who are already there in the palace more. So um, just to review for people that aren't as familiar with the significance of Sennacherib in, in the Bible, um, he so he he came up to a, attack Jerusalem, but prior to that he had besieged and conquered and destroyed Lachish, which was the sort of last fortress town to make your way up to Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and there's a siege ramp that's still there today, and like you can... People are still finding arrowheads and uh, from from the the attack. And then this is this is a story that's told in Kings, in Chronicles, and Isaiah. So it gets a lot of airtime, and in his own annals, and it's represented on his palace wall. So it's it's probably the most attested story uh, in the Bible that has an ancient Near Eastern confirmation uh, of the story. So and then. Just um, to kind of round things off, what, what you, you've got another project going on with Hezekiah's tunnel as well, right? So staying in the Assyrian period, right? Right. So that actually um, was very recently published in the latest issue of JBL mm-hmm. um, regarding what is the real Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, Please been- don't tell me that the tunnel the tourists go through is not the real one. Okay. You're not going to disappoint all those tourists, are you? Just you just need to stay seated, Matt. Okay, I am. Yep. I'm sitting down. <laughs> and actually, I've been through that tunnel as well. Okay. 
it is the real tunnel. Uh, if he gets out. Okay. You would call it Tunnel Eight. Tunnel yeah. Eight. You're, you're going to put a reasons. lot of people out of business <laughs> if you if you said it wasn't. If I yeah. Well, it's like, well, either it's got way, the someone's going right? to go. So how how could someone say it's not? Well, I know. Just like okay, we're you know we have pottery shards or dating from this. Maybe mm. that inscription isn't as late as we think it is. Maybe it's a forgery. Maybe it's a fake. Da da da. da. But um, there's always that argument, right? You know, people can can do arguments, but do you have good support? Yeah. So. Um, my paper looks more carefully at that. But also, what's the literary record? What is it um, claiming? What does mm. it tell us about what was present back then? Put that all together. I and find it a little hard to piece together the the Hezekiah's Tunnel from the literature. Wait, well, and that's part of the beauty of this article. Okay. So it's not just about Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's about um, how... How it gets presented. <laughs> well... <laughs> Not just how it gets presented, how it gets worked on. Um, mm. This isn't interdisciplinary work. This isn't just about um, biblical studies. This isn't just about literary studies. This is also about how does that work with archaeology mm. and what archaeologists have found. So, I mean, I was looking at stuff that had been published in Nature um, Journal regarding, oh gosh, Rhenium Thorum dating. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I had discussions with various archaeologists yeah. about these things. Anything out of boy's life? I'm just trying to think of um, a boy's life. I used to get Boys Life magazines. No, I they, wouldn't they would know. Have... I wouldn't know. <laughs> oh, okay, you, you didn't read that. <laughs> Shame on um, you. No. Um, so just just to remind people, what's this like Hezekiah's tunnel? What is that, and and why? What's the debate around it? Okay, so you want to, the passages to look at are Second Chronicles chapter thirty-two, verses three through four, and verse thirty actually, and then Second Kings twenty, verse twenty. Okay. And so um, in the biblical record, is uh, there's a tunnel that is said to reroute the water supply somewhere safe within the city. Yeah, so you have, like, he's getting ready for an Assyrian attack. Right, and it was and... ordered by Hezekiah, and it was, as far as we can read in the record, it was um, constructed, I don't know, that's not really the technical term, it was constructed, it was made, it was tunneled during his reign. Yeah, and it's it, it's because you're going to get besieged and so you need water supply right to survive that right and there's not a lot of they kind of they're preparing for the worst they are they are yeah so they're preparing for the siege and they want to make sure they still have access to water Um, i like that so however we have two tunnels that lead from the spring to into the sea so tunnel eight and channel two and more recently there have been a few it's it's still been a minority voice but a respected minority voice has argued that actually Channel 2 is Hezekiah's Tunnel, not Channel, uh, not Tunnel 8. Okay. Are they just trying to be innovative or are there I, good reasons for it? <laughs> I think they're just trying to be innovative uh-huh. because it, it still flies in the face of a lot of the evidence. So what yeah. my paper does, it brings all of this together, um, which hasn't been done, but it also goes, a little, it goes deeper into um, the literary, you could call it a record, but the literary presentation. And so... Um, I would defend that Channel 2 is there in the text, but it's a different um, it's a different water supply. Oh, really? It's in yeah. the text? Well, I think so. And that's where Second cool. Chronicles 32, 3 through 4 comes in. Okay. So should we read that? Second yeah, Chronicles <laughs> it's been a while. I've got 32, a lot 3 to 4. Uh, okay, is that what you said? So yeah. he decided, so this is Hezekiah, getting ready for snack ribs invasion. He decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs, which were outside the city, and they helped him. 
So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and he rebuilt the wall. Okay, that goes on to the building up the wall. So he stops up the springs, right? Mm-hmm. And he's... So he doesn't want the Assyrians to get water, but he's got to have water. So what... Ha- okay, wait, so what are the springs? And what is the stream that flowed through the land? And is what's that, the relationship is, between uh, the two of them? This is what we were talking about earlier. This Is this um, Nahal? So... So Nahal. But we were talking about Nahal with another article. Oh, okay. Later. Oh, okay. Wow. See, yeah, this is yet another it all, article. It spanned it off going. all these articles. Okay. So, so when it says um, the 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 stream, it might not be a stream. It could be a tunnel. It could be a tunnel. It could be right because Nahal, which is translated stream or wadi, could also be tunnel, channel. Exactly. Okay. Water so course. so that's water course. Water course. That's yeah. the base definition. Right. right. And back then. Some terms, and I'm speaking now more of the ancient Near East, like, or, yeah, I'm speaking more of Semitic languages, not just of, like, Hebrew. Yeah. Um, some terms have to do with watercourses could denote either a man-made one or a natural one. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, but we also find some terms, I was looking more in terms of, like, Canadian, I mean, Canadian, oh my gosh, Acadian terms. <laughs> Acadian terms. <laughs> the Canadians. <laughs> I know, some of them think they I, are, you know, some I, of them think they are Acadians. Do you, do you think the Canadians dug the other channel it would be a very long one yeah It'd be a very long one but if if proved that could be that would really transform assyrian period biblical studies i think yeah i know i just don't know with all that snow over there yeah just just could sure, be they tend more, to just melt snow if they need water don't it they just, it could just be a little more difficult okay yeah, yeah. sorry we were saying there's all those gases under like you know carbon mm. dioxide bubbles and stuff that could that could actually uh, make it get, easier are you getting into fracking now uh what Oh, you know where they... Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... so, Sorry, you were you were talking about the, the channel, separate channel. Oh, channel two. Yeah. Uh, so you think it's in the text? I think so. Mm-hmm. I'm not the first one to think that. Um, but I'm just like, again, putting all this together and giving more reinforcement from the text for it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the contribution I'm making. And uh, so that's in Journal of Biblical Literature for those who want to that's look right. that up. That's right. just came out um, of the press. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I, so Mary, one of the questions that we ask on this podcast is, of all our guests, if you could step back, look at the field of biblical studies, what's, what, what do you think is one idea or theory that you think needs to die? That Jesus did not die and rise from the dead that would be the first one that's a pretty big one the second one would be um that we are not able to make a difference in the world for good Hmm. um and how do you see that manifesting itself in biblical studies i see it more in just a an approach a worldview i i feel like um i've met I end up having these conversations, I should add, because I am actively involved um, with a number of NGOs, do things in various countries, um, you know, orphanages in Africa and Southeast Asia, um, organizations that um, help rescue and rehabilitate uh, minors and actually adult women who've been trafficked. 
Um, so when people find that out, they're like, wow, how can you do that? I never assumed that, you know, the world is such a bad place, but I never thought, you know, I could ever make a difference. And I was like, so what are you doing? You're just spending all your time in the library mm. working on these things. No, it can make a difference. And not only that, biblical studies can make a difference. Um, so what are so, the links you make like between, so you do all this nerdy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, but you also do this kind of, I don't want to call it activism, you, like mission type work, social um, justice, social justice work. Yeah. yeah, compassion yeah so, so what, how, what to you, what for you is the connection between those two worlds that seem so the heart of God, the heart yeah. of God. I was in South Korea, um, last year, um, to, uh, deliver a guest lecture and uh, my kind host, um, who was a very seasoned Old Testament scholar there, um, when he found out, you know, what countries I was about to go to after uh, South Korea and why and what I was doing, um, because he had known me just from my academic side and it invited me over um, to speak at the university. But when he found out also um, just some of the um, volunteer um, service projects and ministries I'm involved in, he said, wow. You have such um, wide interests. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, most Old Testament scholars just do Old Testament studies. They aren't so concerned about other things. But here, you know, you're going off to an orphanage in Cambodia and you're looking for teenage girls in brothels and spending time with them and um, he's like, he's like, most people, you know, don't care about those things or, or they don't think they can do something about it or make time for it. And, um, my response to him was, is, and this is, this was just a conversation, but, um, I was like, yeah, actually this is very true. I, I said, you know, for me, it all makes sense. Hmm. It's all consistent because it's what God shows me of his heart. So they are sometimes different ways that I um, connect with different aspects of his heart. But for me, it all, it all comes out of what God shows me of his heart. Mm-hmm. I do believe that um, he shows different people, different things around his heart. Um, you know, he's got a big heart. <laughs> yeah. uh, but for me, it's just like, all right, he's showing me, you know, um, it's important to, to care about family and to take care of my mom. She's, you know, battling cancer. All right, all right. Mm-hmm. You know, he shows me, you know, um, hey, I'm. he's present in his word. Um, and it's a way to get to know him more deeply in that way. And there, there's things to help other people understand about him through his word. Okay, so I'm in that. Um, and then, you know, hey, <laughs> girls are getting raped and um, taken from their families. Mm-hmm. And sometimes boys are too. And um, there's some very, very broken people in the world because of this. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's not that hard to actually get involved, even in a small way, in the anti-trafficking movement. So, you know, go there. Go to orphanage in Africa. Hold a baby for a while, you know. Um, for us as Westerners, at least, um, thankfully, there's a lot of open doors. There's a lot of opportunities to do this. Um, even as, you know, a short-term um, service project or um, regularly, um, I hate to put it sweet. But in terms of the time you have, you could even do it regularly on the side hmm. um, while having a full-time job, or you could get even more involved than that. But, so, you know, you could enter at all different levels with um, these kinds of things. I, I, I'm going to dare to say 
in the world we live in in the West, we are without excuse to make a contribution um, in in doing good, in mm. helping to bring life to people. Mm. So it's just a question of where where is God showing you, or is He leading you on that? Mm. And and do you think that your involvement in in mission and uh, social justice work and taking care of your mom has shaped how you then read the Bible, kind of going back and you know from from those those things that you're involved in looking back at how you read them you know i want to say yes but the answer is no i think Mm -hmm. it's a reverse um when i pray um and when i'm just very conscious of god with maybe in activities or things going on whether it's those things that you mentioned or not it could just be in a context of prayer or it could be while I'm doing a service project or something. When I pray, when I have this, this um, quite a consciousness of God, and I feel it, and I am aware of I'm working with Him, um, then that that can actually influence how I read the Bible. Um, but more often, it's the reverse: how, how I read the Bible influences how I do life. Um, but when there when there's a certain what I feel awareness of the presence of God in something in an activity. That that does change how I read some things. Yeah, for sure. Well, Mary, I think that's a a great place to conclude this podcast uh, session with you. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk with OnScript. Thanks, Matt. It's been fun. It has. (laughs) You've been listening to OnScript. Conversations on Current Biblical Scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.